0: Hey everybody st paul here welcome to episode 51 of music on the run fellow guitar player and bass player actually he's in the steve miller band and so was i we got a lot to talk about kenny lee lewis is next on music on the run before we get started here do me a favor wherever you got this podcast make sure you subscribe give us a rating and if you have time and like what you're hearing Make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. hey everybody I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond and Amy few And when I'm not playing music, I love to run and this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road physically, mentally and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run Hey everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 51 of Music on the Run. Man, a lot has happened since we uh, last chatted. A lot of music finally is going on. I had the opportunity to go out to California with my brothers. We have a band called the Peterson Brothers. Go figure, you know, kind of a stretch with the name. But uh, we had a great time. We played a club called Vibrato, which is Herb Alpert's club out there. Had a blast. It was packed. In fact, uh, my next guest was, our, uh, was in the band with us and we had a ball. Um, I just did a gig last night with the Minneapolis Funk All-Stars and that was incredible. It was a private party for the Minneapolis Heart Foundation Institute. And uh, it was unbelievably funky and it's just so good to be able to play live music in front of human beings again. Anyway, I'm excited about episode 51. Wait till you meet our guest. He's an old friend of mine. But before we do that, I want to make sure uh, we get in our gratitude segment. And I want to do a special shout out to our patrons who financially help us put on this podcast. And if you're curious about what that is, there are three different levels, $2 level, a $5 level, and a $10 level. You get a little skin in the game. You get some uh, some cool little... Uh, things in return. uh, And we'd love to have you part of that. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. I'll say it again because I think I slurred my words and I promise I haven't (laughs) been drinking. www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And go check out the different levels that we have there. And I want to do a special shout out to our $5 members, John, I don't know your last name, but you've been with us from, I think, just about the beginning. Thank you so much for supporting us. And Gregory Davis. Thank you so much, Gregory. Appreciate everything you do. We could not put on this podcast without you guys. All right, without further ado, uh, my next guest is a writer. He's a bassist. He's a guitar player, a singer, a producer, and an all-around badass. He's been with the Steve Miller Band forever. I'm going to get the exact number of years out of his mouth. Please welcome my guest, Kenny Lee Lewis. Kenny Lee.
1: How's it going, Paul?
0: Good. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to hang out with us for a little while.
1: My pleasure, man. Thanks for coming into the man cave here at Miramonte.
0: Oh, I love that! That's a beautiful room. For those of you who can't see it, he's got all you know, a couple of acoustics. Was that a three thirty-five guitar sitting right next to you? What yeah, is that? that's the one that was sitting next to you the other night. Oh, you played that! Kenny and I did a gig. He was on the Peterson brother gig the other night at Vibrato in Bel Air, California, with the Peterson Bros. Uh, that was a ball!
1: It was killer. It How fun really was, was that? It was great because, you know, we don't have a whole lot of really great venues in Los Angeles, let alone the entire state. And it's right. just really nice to have played one of the better ones with you. That was
0: fun. And you were you were a little bit of an instigator on that. I think between you and I, we got the gig booked with Hassan over there, who's a great guy and a great musician as well. So thanks for, for uh, you know, making that happen. And uh, it was just great to hear you play. You and I have done some gigs together. Um, yes, yes. Mostly, it, I've been like the drummer or something on them. We yes. had a, what was the name of the band that we had that we were doing for a little while? I
1: think that we, I think we were calling it Abracadabra because we were doing a lot of Steve Miller songs, and uh, it was something your brother Billy had cooked up, and uh, we were working with that gentleman Chris, who's no longer with us,
0: oh, that's who was sort right. of like our
1: agent, and he booked us on some. Really nice gigs up there in Minneapolis and um, at upper even up in the Ojibwe Reservation and a couple other areas. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of Steve Miller songs, but it wasn't like a tribute act. But we just called it ever for fun. And right. yes, you were the drummer because your brother was the bass player and I was the guitar player.
0: Right, 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 right. Uh, and you played with my brother Billy in the Steve Miller Band. Well, he was in it for 25 years. How long have you been in the Steve Miller Band?
1: Well, I actually... Saw started working with steve over Capitol records on the Abercadaver album in this time of the year in 1981 so i've been working with him for 40 years but Good. uh i didn't join the tour until you know probably around february or march of 82 so it's you know 81 years working with him uh yeah i mean 34 <laughs> years working with him sorry <laughs> that's quite 1982. feels like it sometimes i'm sure I'm, you know, forty years, you know, working with him, and thirty nine on the on tour with him, on and off. Because if you remember, I took a break uh, from eighty seven to ninety three, in which you were a part of that.
0: Right. So th- that's also our connection, and that's how we know each other. Because I ended up stepping into play with my brothers, Billy and Ricky, in the Steve Miller Band from eighty eight till was it ninety three? Yeah, I can't remember if it was ninety two or ninety three.
1: Somewhere in there, right? And then we dovetailed because as I was coming back, we dovetailed on that uh, Earth Day gig with Paul McCartney at the Hollywood, the Hollywood
0: Bowl was my very last gig yeah we
1: did we did an unplugged show and he just wanted me to kind of play acoustic guitar and sing and I guess he just wanted to check if, see if I could blend or not because he hadn't worked with me in a while and so he just kind of put me on that gig in along with all you guys and uh, that's all in video and I actually have a really cool video from that night because if you remember we all got to go on stage and sing with Paul yeah, at the and end, on Hey Jude. And so I have this clip of Diane and I and Paul and Ringo and everybody else haloed around us and we're all singing Hey Jude and I have a video of that that CNN shot that night and I actually Mm -hmm. have that.
0: I have to see, I've never seen that. I don't know whether I'm in it or not, but I'd love to have it just
1: to show my kids. I'm sure you're in the crowd, but but the fortunate thing was that Diane and I were just happy to be in the wings, peeking around the corner when he called everyone out and he saw Diane and and he knew Diane because she was, of course, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in the Sgt. Pepper movie, so they knew each other.
0: Your wife was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in in what
1: movie? The Sgt. Pepper's movie with the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton.
0: Oh, my God. I think you told me this before when I was playing with Peter, and I've forgotten that. That's wild. So she was right in the background background there, so So she was in the mix. mix. She's She's always always been in the mix.
1: Right. So he already knew her, so when he looked over the side of the stage, and I had just met him backstage for the first time, and... But he remembered my name, and he said, oh, Diane and Kenny, uh, could you come out and join me? And I'm like in shock. I'm sitting there. I was just sitting there watching the show in the wings, and then he turns to the left. He goes, oh, and and Brother Ringo, you you too. And so here's Diane and I and Ringo. We're all going to the center of the stage, and they hadn't taken the shot yet but as soon as we all got lined up we all started singing is when they took the shot oh
0: and my I, god how great I
1: to have that i know it was pretty crazy so that's the night that you and i met actually uh, we had a rehearsal i think the day before in a hotel room and then the next day we just went up there and did the gig right and you
0: from that moment on you've been with them ever since
1: Uh, Well, except for the, uh, there was a break he took when he just retired for a while, and that was from 2001 to 2004. Oh,
0: so what does one do? I mean, everybody thinks that this is so glamorous and that, you know, you get this great big legacy gig, right? Right. Oh, he's set for life. This is, he doesn't have anything to worry about.
1: What I'm trying to educate these people on is that this is, you know,
0: when they stop working, so does the band, and you know, we aren't on something called retainer, which Correct. is a salary.
1: Correct, what did you do during those off years? Well, when he took the break in 1999, he uh f- kind of freaked out. Actually, it was 2000. Sorry, 2000. We did the millennial, uh, we did the Atlantis down in Bahamas, it was really great, and uh. We were doing some more U.S. touring near the end of the summer, and we had a couple more dates. And we did a gig at in Temecula at this new place called the Chum, uh, called the Temecula, whatever it was, Chumash, you know, resort. Actually, no, excuse me, Pechanga, not Temecula. Okay. It was in Temecula. It was called Pechanga, and that was the tribe that had this casino. It was brand new, and a little flimsy stage, and. We were up there playing and they couldn't have any of the roadies up there it was just the band only that's how small the stage was and a guy jumped up on stage and they had hired these little you know native american women to be the security that night oh and they were all kind of sitting down in the In the the trough there, you know, (laughs) with they're on their phones talking to their families or whatever. And this guy jumped right over the top of them, off the top of the barrier. And this big dude is now on stage with all of us. And he's coming after Steve, right? And so I got my guitar, and I'm, like, trying to get in between him and and Steve and kind of pushing him away. And we're doing, I think we're doing True Fine Love, the song. And while it was going on, (laughs) he, he... the guy, the guy, I mean, he never got access to Steve because I kept, you know, kind of blocking him. So he jumped back into the crowd. He he did the mosh pit dive and he was gone. And Steve, who had already been kind of upset because SFX had bought all the gigs, so this is before Live Nation, and you know it was increasing the prices of tickets and you know the lawn seats were going through the roof and the parking and he was they were telling him who was opening acts were going to be and Mm. you know napster was hitting and he wasn't getting any sales and it was just a really bad time for him he stops in the middle of the song right and he goes to this whole diatribe about how it's getting too rock and roll in here the the sound's too loud the crowd's getting out of hand um this is really not the way it should go, you know, and, and I look over at your brother, Billy, and I said, I think you need to get your resume together because I think this is going to be the end. No. <laughs> and Billy kind of looked at me like, Nyeh. and so, and sure enough, we found out the next day we had a Canadian tour that was coming up in a couple weeks. He canceled that, and we had one more obligation at the House of Blues in Orlando, and that was our last gig, and he just said sayonara, and he took his football and went home. We didn't have a football, so we couldn't oh. have a game. So, what like he- you say, we were just completely, you know, no, no retainer. And he just left. He's just like, and he literally said, Vaya con Dios at the end of the sound check. Because that was the last time we we heard from him, you know, until I get a call in 2004 when I'm working at Guitar Center in artist relations sales in Hollywood. And he goes, hey, you know, I'm going to go on the Jay Leno show. I got a box set, and I'm thinking about maybe using some of the old guys, and, you know, we're going to go up there and maybe do Rock Me or stuff. And, you know, I'm just going to promote this uh, box set. And I went like... Okay, he goes. Oh, yeah. Can you do the backline, the contracts, you know, the stage plot, the transportation, you know, uh, the charts, and and you know, make sure that everybody's there. That they, uh. He made me the octopus, you know. So all of a sudden uh-huh. now, he wanted to make me Rick Fisher because Rick Fisher, of course, was gone. Oh, right. And the old road manager, of the Steve. And November. that's what happened. I did that gig. It was a Jay Leno summer show. We were on there with Pamela Anderson and uh, uh, what's his name. Uh, who was the uh, the schlock, uh, TV jock, oh, uh, Jerry Springer. <laughs> oh, wow, good combo platter. <laughs> I know, and it was Leno, and it was outside. It was outside in the parking lot. It was like a summer series or something. So I did the back line. I rented it from the Guitar Center. I got everybody what they needed. He wanted to use local people because he had no budget, so we got Gary Malibur back and Gerald Johnson back. Oh, wow. But we called Joseph because Joseph had already been trained in all the harmonies and everything. And uh, he just decided that he wanted to kind of bring those folks back, uh, and to keep it lean. He didn't even have Norton come, which was interesting. Norton Um, Buffalo, who
0: was with him for so that's how
1: we got started. So he quit in two thousand one, or at the end of two thousand, I should say. And then from two thousand one through two thousand four, I was working at Guitar Center. I had no choice. I had nowhere to go, you know. And I needed to keep the money flowing. I had young kids and stuff, and uh, and like you say, you just got to go to work, you know. And there wasn't anything like that. That was, you know, in that price range, you know, to be able to replace. So they made me a fast track manager. I was right. making pretty good money because I had friends there, and uh, you know, so I was at least paying my bills. So that's what was going on when he called me in two thousand four. <laughs> wow.
0: So that that that's just being. Um, that is what it is to be an independent contractor or a side man. Is that, yeah. that the greatest kids can come in. You could be with them for. 30 years or 30 minutes and then you got to when you got to stick and move the minute that thing ends yeah
1: he just and got a humbug he just got a humbug he just didn't want to go to work anymore and it was like via condios, guys and that was it you know it was not you know no severance or anything It was just like done wow. and uh you know i mean i was still doing casuals in a few sessions and stuff but the right. session industry was already starting to to wane by then and while it was in fact it was pretty much long gone by then because that was the uh, you know two thousand you know one Mm-hmm. In fact, it was January 2001 when I got hired at Guitar Center.
0: Well, let's let's go back to the beginning. Now, you grew up in California in Pasadena, is that right?
1: Just born there. Uh, okay. I actually uh, grew up in uh, Temple City and a little town called La Mirada up until about the time I was six. And my dad got a job promotion. He worked for the state up the capital. Um, and so we moved to Sacramento in 1960. So most of my childhood was up in Northern California and I was in, around, you know, the great outdoors. I was around, you know, agriculture and I was around eventually the hippy dippy Haight-Ashbury uh, phenomenon of Northern California and used to go over to San Francisco all the time, whatnot. And, you know, a lot of backpacking and fishing and Tahoe and, you know, all that stuff. So it was a really nice upbringing went to college there got in the college you know band learned how to read notation okay. no, but you know and i was in bands and stuff but I, I always wanted to be a studio musician so my my yearn my yearning was to get back down to la because i had some friends in sacramento who had older brothers that were in the business in la and they used to let me come down there in the summer and they would sort of mentor me they were called the perry family okay and tom perry one of the brothers was the engineer on the silk degrees album for um Boss boss Gags, and also did a bunch of Diana Ross and, you know, Jackson 5 records. And then the other brother, Bill, played with the Righteous Brothers. I think he was doing it before your brother Billy did it. Isn't that crazy? Uh, He was doing it like in 62, 63. uh, But then he went down there, became a studio cat, played on some of John London records. And, you know, he was a bass player and a guitar player like you and I, and like Billy Franzi and everybody else that we know that is an oddball that plays both instruments at the same time, you know. And uh, he was one of those guys, so he mentored me. And then another guy named Don Perry placed a bunch of my tunes. He was a producer and a, and a song plugger and did uh, music supervision for movies and things like that. So I had these three guys, and then the younger brother was my drummer in my band in high school. And we all kind of went down together. So I had all these four guys that were helping me bring me into the, the L.A. studio scene. Because at that time, it was pretty tight. It was already pretty much sewn up. People like Ridden Hour and, you know... You know, um, Larry Carlton and, and Robin Ford. I mean, these guys were all Luke doing Ather, the, those guys. the dates. Well, Luke there hadn't come on the scene yet. and That was coming oh, that a little right? later. But okay. but I'm talking about the, the, the last guys that replaced the wrecking crew. You know, it was that okay. bunch. Those are the guys that I kind of met, you know, people like Max Bennett and, you know, Earl Palmer and, you know, those kind of people. And uh, so eventually I did get into that business, but it took a long time, uh, as it does whenever you make a, a move to go to a new town. And uh, eventually I was able to do that. And it it happened when I met Diane, you know, because she had a record deal and she sort of brought me into the biz, which was really cool.
0: Explain to to my listeners who who Diane is. Obviously, she's her wife,
1: but musically, who is she? Yeah, Diane Steinberg comes from a legacy of musicians from Memphis that were there during the late 40s and early 50s when jazz was (laughs) sort of morphing into rock and roll and boogie woogie. And her father was a great trumpet player, played with, you know, Cap Calloway and Dizzy Gillespie and Lionel Hampton, all these people. Wow! The keyboard player Finest, Finest Newborn Jr. was like Art Tatum's nemesis. Art would never even follow. Finest, he was the baddest guy ever to hit the planet. He was in the family and in the band, Diane, was in his lap learning how to play Rhapsody in Blue when she was 12. You know so she comes from a big legacy of musicians but eventually her mother moved to Detroit brought the girls up there and her mom became a very famous DJ not only in Memphis but also in Detroit and you know broke all the Motown acts with all that stuff so she was around music all her life became a writer and a keyboard player and entertainer and when I met her she needed a bass player because she was doing a trio around town in LA and she was just getting ready to do her second album And that's how we met. She hired me as her bass player. We ended up writing songs together. And that's how I got on her record. What was the L.A. scene like back in those
0: days? Tell me about the studio scene, the live scene. I'm just curious because I wasn't around at that time. And I hear it was incredibly exhilarating. Lots of work. Uh, Lots of competition, but how did you fit into that whole mix?
1: I got into the last four years of the golden era, which was from 76 to 80. Once 80 hit, that's kind of when MIDI and sampling and synthesizers were hitting real big, and it eventually just sort of dwindled away. Mm. But from about 76 to 80, it was really exciting. And uh, it was just right at the tail end of that heyday, you know, before digital and, uh, you know, they had, you know, live rhythm sections, you know, six to seven people at a time recording. You had to read notation because it's studio time was really expensive. You had to go in. You had to be able to play all styles. You had to be able to play solos on demand, first take, second take, or or you'd overdub, uh, overdub it after the session. And then you get a double, you know, because, you know, whenever you do another track, you get another payment which was kind of nice because we were all in the union this is when the union was still going on and uh but it was pretty exciting i mean we got to do a lot of different types of music all the way across the board i would say the only thing we didn't do was probably bebop and that kind of thing. But we would do things that sounded like it that people would write. Huh. But we wouldn't go in and actually do a legitimate jazz date. But we were doing everything. I mean, when you, you, you'd you be doing commercials, you'd be playing bluegrass and country and, you know, gospel and, you know, and whatever they call for for that particular product in that particular session. Whatever contractor or whoever did the charts and whatnot, you'd have to come to the party with a lot of different styles so that means you had to own a, own a lot of instruments too so that was right. kind of a thing you had to like start buying a ton of instruments and then you had to have cartage and then you had to have an answering service called Your Girl or something like that where they knew where you were all the time because they, we didn't have any beepers yet it, right. or nothing all we had was rotary phones so you'd leave phone numbers of the places you were going to be throughout the day with Your Girl and then she would call you wherever you were at and then she'd leave a number oh you got a session at 8 o'clock tonight or tomorrow morning at 9 you gotta be at AM, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they would organize your sessions for you while that was going on. So it was kind of exciting. And wow. you know, you'd move from single scale to double scale and sometimes you get triple scale, but that was mostly for, you know, the guys in Toto and, you know, those guys, you know, those kind of guys, you know. Right. Uh but uh, I started at a single scale, was happy to do that and eventually worked my way up to double scale. And that was kind of near the end when I met Steve in uh like I said in 1981. And that's when uh, I had to make the decision to walk away from my studio career to go on the road with the Joker, which was quite a decision I had to make.
0: Tell me some of the people you worked with in the studio back then, some of the memorable sessions that you had prior to Steve Miller.
1: Well, of course, the first one was with Diane, you know, because we went in the studio to do her second album. And, and who do the producers hire? But they hired everybody in Toto. Oh, the, wow, with, wow. And the only person they didn't hire was Luke because he was only about 17 or 18 at the time. <laughs> he wasn't quite in there yet. So we had Jay Graydon in there on guitar rather than him. But it was Jeff McCarl, myself. Uh, they wanted David Hungate from the band, but Diane put her foot down. And she says, no, no, no. He co-wrote these songs with me. He wrote the bass lines. They're already written into the charts. He knows them. He wrote them. Let him play the bass, and the producers were all freaked out about it. Oh, we can't let this guy in there. He's doesn't. He's an unknown, you know. And she put her foot down. So I had to give it up to my wife. Man, she just wow. said, Nope. nope, he's going to do it." And I went in there and I cut it, you know. And you know, I'm in there with Picaro, and I'm in there with, uh, you know, William D. Smithy Smith on on Oregon. We had uh, a bunch of great background singers. Um, We had like, um, you know, we had. um, uh, uh, Well, of course, we had um, David Page who was doing all the synthesizers and stuff, and. Uh, it was great. I mean, uh, we had Harvey Mason on some of those dates on drums. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a guy named Michael Pooh Bear on drums. So just in that one record, I met a whole lot of people, man. It was really cool. We had some other guitar players, Ben Benet, and I uh, can't remember all of them, but uh, I even got to play a little guitar on that. Like you, uh, they wanted to, you know, save on a little bit on the money, and they go, out to get Kenny to bring a Stratocaster, and maybe you could put a rhythm part on it, and we'll give him single scale, you know. <laughs> and if you were already on the bass track, You wouldn't get full scale. You would just get a double, which was not (laughs) as much as having to hire some guy to come in and and, and play and bring out his cartage. Because, you know, cartage was $150, $200 just to have everything delivered, you know. so. But, you know, and, and another funny part about that session is that we were splitting the day with a band that was coming in in the evening. We were doing the morning and afternoon sessions. And at night, a band called Fleetwood Mac would come in. And they were recording their Rumors album at the same time that we were doing our album. And we would compare notes and hang out together and eat yogurt and talk shit and whatnot. And, you know, and uh, Stevie Nicks was always mad because I'd always eat the good yogurt in the morning before she got there. She'd go, you didn't leave me any of <laughs> the good stuff. I'd leave her like the coffee-flavored yogurt. You know, oh, sure. you know, <laughs> oh that's classic. You know, like vanilla and coffee, and so I did a lot of berries and the banana stuff. <laughs> anyway, but we were good friends, and uh, you know, we wished them well on their record. We had no idea it was going to do what it was going to do, but we knew it was a good record. No. And of course, with Diane, her record would have probably done very well too. But then she got that movie, and when that happened, she had to put a halt to her career because she was going to open up for George Benson. We were going to go out with him, uh, you know, and uh, Ken Fritz was going to manage her, his manager. And, uh, but she couldn't do it because she had to, you know, do this movie. We even had Steve Perry hired to do background vocals for us because he was a buddy of mine that I grew up with in the San Joaquin Valley and he was broke and he needed to work and he wasn't getting anything going on in LA. So he was all looking forward to rehearsal with us and go on the road. And I had to call him before he even did a rehearsal with him and go, dude, she got the movie. I got to let the band go. Oh my God. Steve Perry was
0: the lead singer attorney for those of you listening. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that I wrote one song with Steve Perry? There's a side note here. I did not know that. Yeah, about, oh, man, it's probably 10 years ago. He lived around the corner from uh, the lead singer in my group, The Family, or F. Deluxe, okay. Susanna. And we both had the same Beverly Hills hair when I used to have hair. And so, <laughs> so he ended up introducing us, and he's like, oh, I'm a huge fan of The Family. I'm like, you are? Uh I said, I'm a huge fan of Journey. My Julie, my wife, is the biggest Journey fan of all time. Yeah. So we got together in his little, tiny apartment in Studio City. Yeah. uh, Sat down and wrote uh, a song. I called Julie on the phone and I said, "Honey, listen to this. This is Steve Perry." And he freaked out. He said, "Who are you calling? Who are you playing that for?" I'm like, "It's my, (laughs) it's my wife, dude." He's like, "Don't play that for anyone." I I said, "Steve." Let me take the track. Let me go work on it at home, and I'll come back tomorrow. He's like, you're not taking the track out of the house. (laughs) He was very particular. (laughs) I think he must be distilled to that day. But, you know, this we were talking once he was super famous and had already left Journey.
1: But that's my side note for my Steve Perry story. story.
0: But he's your old buddy,
1: huh? That's great. Yeah. Well, we grew up together in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, he had a band called Ice and they used to come up to Sacramento and he was the drummer and he would play drums throughout the night. And then once in a while they'd let him come out front and he'd sing some, you know, kind of Sam Cooke sounding song because oh, he always yeah. sounded like mm-hmm. Sam Cooke for crying out loud. But uh, but he sounded great. You know, it was like a cross between Rod Stewart and Sam Cooke. That's the only way I could describe it. Uh, And his uh, some of his members would come up to music store that I was working at at the time I was only 17 and uh, they would come up and hang and we got to know each other pretty good And I got in the club because I had a buddy that could sneak me into the club because I was Mm -hmm. like I said 17 And I could sit and watch them I think they were playing a place called the gilded cage or something like that But uh, they had a great band and ice was really cool and I I became friends with the uh, With the other guy that was uh, I think he was a keyboard player But he also played drums when Steve would come out front and I didn't get to meet Steve really that well. But then when we moved to L.A., I stayed in contact with him. He and I would exchange notes all the time. He was trying to, you know, get together with the Who's manager. And then he joined oh, yeah. a band with Tim Bogert. And that was called Pieces, which is kind of ironic. Yeah, tell me, me
0: about up, Pieces. Because I ended you were... up
1: having a band called Pieces, too, which was well, a separate Well, that's right. Pieces, exactly. So you know. <laughs> that's what I want to hear about. Were you hanging out? Was that up
0: in San Francisco area or Sacramento area?
1: No, that was oh. L.A., and that was after okay. Diane and I had done her album, and she had already gotten the movie. While she was working on the movie, I needed to go to work, you know, because she wasn't playing anywhere, anywhere. Right. So um, I joined a band called Five Mighty Pieces, and they were kind of like... Um, almost like a lounge act. i mean they had outfits and they would do who loves you you know by frankie valley four seasons they would come out from the back of the room all singing a cappella, and they'd come up the stage and you know they did this whole show it was a high class cover band so i got in the band replaced the bass player i guess they were having trouble with him and uh so um i did the cover thing with them for about four or five months and we really were taking off big And they were getting kind of tired of the whole outfit cover thing, and they wanted to do original material. So I – and they had a keyboard player that they were having some problems with, and they were going to let him go. So I suggested that they bring in my friend Jeff Lieb, who at that time was named Jeff Lieb. He's now known as Jeff Paris. But um, he was the one that introduced me to Diane, and he's, you know, like your brother Ricky's. Plays like Herbie, sings like Stevie and Donny mm. Hathaway. You know, right. he's like a yeah. really great player. And uh, so I brought him into that band. And then that's when we decided to start writing. And we built a studio in the drummer's house in the garage. And we spent a whole summer writing. And we, I ended up calling the producers the produced on Diane's record because that's the <laughs> only producers I kind of knew. Right. And they came and they loved us. And they got assigned to EMI uh, Liberty, UA Liberty at that time, before EMI bottom. And we got a deal. I'm Mark uh lindsey the lead singer for paul reaver and the raiders was an ar guy there and he signed us and i was always a big fan of because you know he was doing hullabaloo and stuff you know and he had the he had the ponytail and everything and i was that's like right. wow man that's so cool i want to grow up and have a ponytail someday <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's unbelievable so he was the one that signed it so that was that piece's record and that came out about 78 79 we got a publishing deal Um, But the label, unfortunately, UA Liberty, was bought by EMI right before our record was going to be released, and the new guy that took over, they fired Mark Lindsay, and the new guy that took over was a guy named uh, Don Grierson. He was from Australia, and he didn't even know anything about American Blue-eyed soul or any of that mm. stuff, and so he says, well, he goes, I don't know what to do with you, you know. You we had we had nothing to do with this record, and I don't know how to market it, you know. You guys, mm. you guys are doing all that Michael McDonald, you know, like Bobby Caldwell thing, and that's all dead now. The knack is the thing, you know. You oh. have to do rock and roll and wear eye makeup and wear a small tie, and I was like, going, <laughs> Yeah, no. that was me, by the way. I wore this makeup and,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, about that's me." A,
1: Well, I mean, you know, that's what was coming, you know, and we were just a bunch of American guys. We were like, you know, Pablo Cruz meets uh, Holland Oates or something, you know, Mm because we were R&B. And they didn't know how to market us because at that time, everything was segregating again. If you were white, you had to do New Wave. If you were black, you did R&B and dance disco crossover kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was really a, a bad time uh, in my life because, you know, I was really looking forward to getting out of the studio scene and wanting to become more of a writer artist. But as it was, we weren't able to do that. So,
0: and right after um, that period, did you, is this where you started placing songs with different people?
1: Yeah, yeah. I was already pl- placing stuff with movies and, you know, television shows and commercials and whatnot. And, uh, and then I got a, one of the guys down, uh, I, I, well, when Diane got the movie, I, I I did another part of my career that I didn't tell you about before I got into pieces. I went down to the ghetto and I got a gig at a Chitlin Circuit Club with a black band playing bass. And that no. was really a great education. And so it was similar to probably your Minneapolis upbringing. You know, I was able to get into the world of R&B yeah. on the ground floor level. To the point where I even had James Jamerson Sr. coming down to hear me playing, and he would sit in front of me and give me pointers and pat me on the back all night long, you know, and like wow. tell me, "Yeah, you sound great. Don't go above the fifth fret. and You're using the right bass and it sounds great. <laughs> Don't use more than 50 watts. You want the distortion. You want this compression. You know, blah 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 blah." Really? You know, it's like he would give me all these pointers. It was it was really great education. That's what I was doing, but when I got into pieces, so and that was only paying like 35 bucks a night. Hey, that's the <laughs> same
0: that they're paying now.
1: So hey, I know. <laughs> pay, has, pay hasn't increased very much at all, is it? So that's what I was doing prior. Then I did the pieces thing and then that fell okay. apart because we weren't, you know, we were doing guitar-oriented rock. Kenny, and how many that- how many acts do you think
0: have fallen apart because a new AR person or new head of a label has come in? We're gonna take a little break from the interview right now because I wanna tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, we're having so much fun with our weekly one-minute funk jams called Funk Friday. We've had so many world-class musicians on Funk Friday, including members of the Steve Miller Band, Fleetwood Mac, Gerald Hall and John Oates, Earthwind and Fire, just to name a few. You can check that out on all of our social media, but you can also see it on our YouTube channel. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of our members who have supported us on Patreon. Don't know what Patreon is? Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And there you'll get all sorts of information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast. There are all kinds of incentives listed there on the website, and there are many different levels on how you can become involved we could not put on this podcast without our patrons all right let's get back to the
1: interview Yoo-hoo.
0: Kenny how and many man, how many acts do you think have fallen apart because a new R person or new head of a label has come in
1: it even I happened mean, I, with Diane's record that I did with her she was on ABC Dunhill and when her yeah. record was just getting ready to come out uh MCA. Bought that, and the guy that signed her, Otis Smith, he was out. So now she was an orphan. You know, they didn't know what to do with her. So it was kind of actually a pretty good thing that she got the movie, because I don't know if they would ever properly have uh, promoted her. But she did do Jerry Lewis Telethon, which we just got a copy of last month. we would never seen a copy of it. She did the Jerry Lewis Telethon saying, Baby, I'm Yours as a cover on her record. And she did like a real cool little R&B, you know, kind of like a, uh, almost like a, um, Loving you, kind of a you know, you know Mini Ripperton kind of literally. yeah, kind of a mini Ripperton approach, you know, real light R and B. And uh it just yeah, got a little other project but it never took off. But it was good because the label probably would have never been able to figure out how to promote that either. So she did the movie instead, which was a flop, but fortunately she had three songs on the album and had favorite nations. Royalty agreement from her contract that she would get paid the same as the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton in terms of her songs on the soundtrack album, which went triple platinum because we've got to get you in your life, come together with Aerosmith, uh, Mm -hmm. get back with Billy Preston. So the record did well and she made some good money off the soundtrack. Sure. You know, because the movie just kind of went, you know, but now it's like a cult favorite and people love it. I don't know why, but you know, it's pretty funny. So that's what happened. And so then. I get in this band, uh, the reason why I told the the Chitlin Circuit story, because one of the producers I met down there that I used to do demos with, an R&B guy, he decided he wanted to do some recording up in the valley, which is unusual for, you know, cats down the hood, because, you know, they usually don't go over the top of the hill. So he wanted to go over the top of the hill and do something different with some different people. So he went to a studio called Fidelity Recorders. Fidelity was owned by Artie Rip who was the guy that ripped off Billy Joel for all his money and when there was a New York guy oh. coming up, you know. And uh, it was all New York guys in the studio. They even had uh, an black, uh, April Blackwood office in the back, a bunch of publishers. So they were doing demos all the time. So anyway, the engineer, Joel Seufer, he liked my bass playing, playing on this guy Jimmy Jules record. He had a record he was doing called You Got to Stay in the Click, Known as Politic. <laughs> that was the name of the song. Wow. I Believe me, Joseph Wooten, every time I sing this song, he falls on the ground because he thinks <laughs> it's the funniest thing. Because he, yeah, he well, always looks at me once and go, up Kenny Lee, you got to stay in the click, baby. <laughs> Anyway, so they liked my bass playing, and he recommended me for more demos there, which eventually led to me meeting Gary Malibur, who lived in the neighborhood. Who's Gary Malibur now?
0: Tell our our listeners
1: who that is. Well, Gary Malibur goes all the way back to Moondance, for crying out loud, with Ben Morrison. He was a Buffalo musician, New York musician. He was in a band called Raven that got signed to Columbia with seven albums for millions of dollars really early. He came to L.A., became a studio guy, played on all Steve Miller's big hits, played on most Eddie Money's big hits, played on uh, some Peter Frampton records, some Bonnie Raitt tours and records, and uh, and the list just goes on. He, at Springsteen, he's still recording with Springsteen. So, wow. big-time studio drummer. He was in the neighborhood, and he would work for demo wage when he wasn't touring or doing big sessions. So, he would come in and do these demos. So. There was a guy there, a writer by the name of Gerard McMahon, and he was putting a band together. He'd already had one record uh, with some label, and they recorded a caribou with Gercio. And so he had a name, sort of, and so they were putting a band together. And the name Kenny Passarelli and the name Stanley Shelton came up for bass seats, but neither one of them were available, and so they offered me the band positions, so that I got in this band called Gerard McMahon and Kid Lightning. Mm-hmm. And Gerard and them had grown up in Denver with Maurice White and all the Earth, Wind & Fire guys because they were a mixed band originally in Denver. A lot of people don't know that, but they were a mixed band. So they were friends with them. So Maurice wanted to get into the new wave, rock and roll thing, you know, with the thin ties and the eye mascara. He wanted to get into that, so he signed that band, and then Gary and I became writers with Gerard. We did two records with Gerard. We could see the writing in the wall that we were never going to be, like, big equity owners. So we started writing our own stuff away from the band, and that's when Steve Miller called in 81, when he was dry, looking for material, and that's when he took all eight of our demos, which became the Abracadabra album. So that ties that all in. What did you write on the Abracadabra record? Uh, the first song is a song called uh, "Keeps Me Wondering Why," and uh, Gary and I wrote that together. And then uh, the second single was called "Cool Magic," I wrote that with Gary as well. And then uh, the flip side of the single in Europe was "Never Say No," that I wrote with Gary and John or our, our other songwriter, uh, friend of ours. And it was kind of like almost kind of like an Eagles kind of. I would say it was almost like country rock, but it was. Uh, it was pretty cool, but it was still rock and roll. More, more right. like Mellencamp. It was like a Mellencamp song. Yeah. And uh, so I had three co-written songs on Abracadabra, which sold five million copies, you know. And so I was able to buy my first house yeah. with the uh, royalties from that record. And God. Uh, yeah. And then Diane had some money coming in on the Sgt. Pepper album. So between Sgt. Pepper and Abercadabra, we were able to buy our first house from Kevin Cronin of Ario Speedwagon. Because he had just moved out because he'd written all the hits for High Infidelity in there. Oh, yeah. And he was already living in a villa in Encino because of all the big hits that they had written there. And so we bought his house. It had an eight-track studio already built into it. Beautiful. So it was pretty cool.
0: When did Steve ask you to go on the road? It was later
1: in the 80s, right? Well, after we did the record, I was just a writer producer guy. I was just—he invited me to come down because he liked my guitar and bass playing. Because if, if you recall, he transferred all of our eight track TAC eighty eight masters to twenty four track, and I was already on the record because I played bass and guitar oh. in almost all those. So he didn't replace any of those parts. He loved them, and so he just called me up one day. He says, "Hey, uh, you're playing bass and guitar and all this." He goes, "I love your playing. Why don't you just come down the studio and help me finish this record?" And so I would just go down there and give him tips on what to do, and what I was thinking. And and Gary was there too. We were uh, Gary got the production credit, but I was the newbie. So mm. I just you know was just there helping out, I guess. Right. But I was there when we recorded the Abercadabra solo and all that stuff, and all the sound effects. And I, and I helped out with that whole session and everything. And so I was just a friend, a peer songwriter that he needed, you know, right. that. I didn't have to impress him or anything. I was already all over the record, you know. So when he asked me to join, it was just sort of like, "Hey, I'm doing pictures tomorrow for the record album, and uh, you're all over the record. Why don't you just come out and tour with us?" It was like that. I didn't have to audition or anything. Wow. Yeah. So he
0: he was. You had no reason to try to impress him because he was he needed you because he was having trouble coming up with material, and that's because he was sober.
1: (laughs) He finally stopped drinking and he got a divorce and uh, he was sober and he just was good. (laughs) His juices weren't flowing. I don't know how to explain it, but he He, he, he was dry, you know, and he needed to deliver a record by Christmas and uh, it was already October.
0: How does one okay? So you've got the gig now, meaning back in the 80s. Right. You're still got the gig no
1: one keeps a gig that long Kenny Lee well no 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 I' now mean, come on now you guys came on I mean we Ricky talked about this the other night at the vibrato I mean you guys came on with Ben's band. I mean I know you weren't there but but you know gordy and Malik and Ricky and, and and Billy they were all brought in for the born to-be blue album I did not play on that album I had nothing to do with that record so True. that was something he decided to do to try to get a new flavor going you know he was trying to rebrand himself he sent me the record i had nothing to do with it and he asked me what i thought of it and i told him i don't get it i don't know what you're doing it doesn't sound like steve miller to me Mm -hmm. i don't think your fans are going to think that i don't think the labels going to even let you release it and he was like you're crazy this is gonna be the biggest record i've ever done click and so i didn't hear from him for six years So that was what that was all about. Because I think I think he wanted me to tour with him because he needed that second guitar and he loves my playing and he wanted me to be involved. But he just didn't like my critique. But guess what? Capitol refused to release the record. He had to sue them on contractual artistic control through his contract, and that was his last record with Capitol on his last seven album deal with them. And he forced them to put that out. I uh, had no idea. <laughs> wow. So I was so. right, but th- but that doesn't mean that he wasn't pissed. <laughs> so
0: because you told him the truth, he didn't want to have anything to do with you for however many years, right? Six years. Yeah. Fast. You, you know I don't know that part of the story.
1: So this yeah. is all
0: news to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. you and I have never spoken about that.
1: No. Because so. we're just
0: hanging and we're always playing music and we're buddies. But I did not know that
1: yeah yeah i mean I, I didn't not like the record i thought the record sounded good and i i love ben and i love the fact that he co-wrote you know space cowboy with him and rearranged mm. it and made it sound real kind of jazzy and and right. new and new you know smooth jazz was just starting then and that right. was a thing and you know like michael franks and uh, uh God, i don't know some of the guys you know kenny Rankin. i mean there were some vocal artists then there were kind of like smooth jazz vocalists and I think Steve saw himself as being like that. I thought I, I think he thought he'd go into the, the autumn of his years, you know, singing jazz or something, you know. Mm. And uh, what, was, what was interesting is that when you guys went out to go tour, oh, not you, but I mean, you, you came a few years later. But when Ricky and Billy and, and Gordy and all of them went out to promote that record, the greatest hit CD came out on a new thing called Compact Disc. Oh, it was like wow. a really big deal compact disc you know it was no more tape anymore it was digital you know and this was a big deal so all the young college people and stuff bought the compact disc which of course we call it cd now and his greatest hits went through the roof and so mm-hmm. while they were on the road playing little red top and Willow weep for me they were screaming for jungle love and even i was no, on the
0: tour by the way okay all right i was okay. on that tour.
1: well i know that eventually you got in the band but i don't know if you were you in the band from 87 uh, eight, uh, eight? Not eighty seven, eighty eight, But I don't okay.
0: think they toured before I was in there. I'll have to ask those guys, but I don't think there was a prior tour, because I was doing my record for Atlantic in New York. Okay. Ben called me and said, can you play guitar? And I went, sort of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you he, play, I said, what you is play. it? He said, it's the Steve Miller brand with your brothers. And I went,
1: I'm in. Okay. And well, I then well, I wasn't there, so you know the story better than I do. But... The CD came out and that's yeah. when everybody was screaming for the rock Tunes and he had to well, start more yeah, that
0: that the, the the jazz tunes went over like a, a lead balloon right and he'd
1: go into rock me, and mean they went
0: crazy yeah, they, go,
1: they, they go ape they go ape so that was the thing you know so right. over a period of six years he was trying to remorph the band back into a rock and roll machine yeah. and that's eventually why he brought Norton back of course and brought mm. Byron back and then uh, you know uh eventually asked me to come on board because on right. they just wanted I don't know I mean whatever guys you whatever you guys were doing out the road when he came to be at the NAMM show in April uh whatever it was January of 19 uh what was it uh 1993 93 or something 92? yeah 1993 yeah. he just said I'm ready to make a change do you want to come back to the banner he goes I'm doing one of your songs on this new record which was the one that Leo Wrote all the songs yeah. for, of course, uh, and I had no idea that he'd recorded my song. I, I didn't have anything to do with it. And When I heard it, I went, "Ah!" because it didn't sound anything like my demo. Mm-hmm. But uh, I couldn't, I couldn't put my foot in there because he'd already, already recorded it. Right. So. so When he asked me to come back in the band, I was really doing well with JBL at the time, selling Rivera guitar amps. In fact, Steve bought a bunch of them from me, and they were getting ready to give me dental for crying out loud, you know, put me on the big payroll. So I was going to be like a regular JBL, you know, electronic engineer kind of dude. And, uh, you know, then he comes back into my life. Was that a difficult decision to make
0: to go back on the road with him well, after the first, all you've been through? They, they, and all the kind of hard feelings that I didn't even know there were. They, no,
1: there weren't you any hard had. feelings. There weren't any hard feelings. There just weren't any feelings at all. He didn't get angry. He, yeah, just, yeah. he just didn't call me. I mean, you know, he told me I was wrong about my summation of the record and mm-hmm. that he thanked me very much for my service and that was it you know it wasn't like angry yeah. so when he came back it was just sort of like hey man what are you doing he goes uh doing this new record and uh i built my business back up and blah 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 and so you know that's what that was all about and uh so it was again another tough decision because when i had to join the band in 82 i was walking away from my studio career yeah when I had yeah, to join my yeah. band in 93, I had to walk away from five years. I'd put in with JBL, you know, and where I was getting ready to, like, have an office in Northridge, for crying out loud, you know. And I had kids and stuff, you know, and I was trying to be more of, like, a regular person. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. when he a- so when he asked me at NAMM, at a, you know, we were eating rubber chicken sandwiches, you know, like you do in yeah. Nam at lunchtime. And I, he's gone, I, I want you to come back in the band. And I, the first thing I said was, why? Yeah. Why? Why do you want to do this to me now? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got everything. I've been in the corporate sector now. I mean, I feel good. I'm still doing music too, but I've got real job. I've got health insurance for crying which you would never pay. You right. Know, and he went, like, he went like that. He goes, well, we'll just pay you more, you know, so you can afford your own. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so we kept going and went back and forth about like that, you know, for about two or three weeks. And, wow. I, again, I had to turn to Diane like I did in 82 and go, what do you think? And she went like... Well, how much is he paying? You know, and I and I told her. She was like, "Hmm." because <laughs> you know, yeah. Diane's yeah. a musician. You know, she knows that. She goes, "Well, maybe it's time for you to go back on the road." <laughs> mm-hmm. so that I kind of left it up to Diane at that point.
0: Yeah, that's a family decision because you've got kids. Like yeah. you said, you had a great job. You were getting ready to. You made a life for yourself, and then. And they keep pulling you back in. It's
1: Exactly. It's like the mafia. It's funny, yeah. man. So that kind of goes back to your original statement you said about how everybody just thinks it's just so grand and it's just all roses and you know and you get hired and it's like you know you're on cloud nine and the red carpet's rolling out you know and like you know there's you know ladies in bikinis with like you know peacock fans and you're in a hammock and you know it's all this stuff i've talked to people before and they actually think this stuff you know and of course the after show parties is like you know a roman you know you know orgy you know
0: yep not happening
1: no they don't have no idea
0: yeah yeah (laughs) the quest the original question i was trying to ask you and it's a compliment but i think you need to share how this happens and it's you've had a gig for so long how do you keep a gig like this for this amount of time what's the secret one of the secrets
1: in this particular organization that i figured out is that uh you don't want to get too close um you don't want to get too buddy buddy with your employer. Mm. Um, I think this goes across the board with a lot of businesses, not just music, but in particular with business in music. In this particular organization, um, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm just going to make this real quick because you know, I mean, I know this is going to pu- go public, but Steve oh, yeah. doesn't. Ha- Steve doesn't cool. have any kids. Yep. He doesn't really have a relationship with his f- siblings, uh, one of which has passed. Uh, His parents are gone. He doesn't really have a whole lot in terms of uh, personal relationships other than just a small group of friends, which are kind of transitory, and then his band. So Mm. you could easily become a buddy with Steve really quickly. He'd love that. He'd love to hang and golf and fish and, you know, go on a, Yacht trip for a month catching salmon or whatever, you know, whatever it is he had is up his sleeve. He doesn't do that stuff nowadays. But in the, when I met him, he was doing that stuff. And I had to realize early on that I can't be a buddy with him and I can't hang with him. Because if mm. you do, you're going to be on a different dynamic level. So you have to make sure you stay. Keep your distance. Keep it cordial. You keep it professional. But you don't have too much exposure. And I think that's been one of the things that's helped me is just to kind of you know, when I see him I'm on the stage, I give him the thumbs up, you know, we're rocking tall together, you know, we're you know, of we're course, doing all the grimacing, you know, we're looking at yeah. the audience, you know, we're we're rocking out. Then when we come yeah. off stage it's like, Oh great, see ya see you tomorrow, you know. You
0: right. know, that's
1: it. You know, I mean it's just professional and that's it interesting how and i has and i and i don't too- i don't you know i don't even invite him to a lot of things that i do which i'm sure he's probably a little hurt by from time to time but i think it's mm. better i think it's better that i'm not trying to include him in all my personal stuff and everything i invited him to my wedding uh he came it was an interesting thing i have him on videotape uh, but at that time he had not married kim yet so he was Kind of transitional, so he brought some interesting woman with him, and my friend Alan O'Day, who wrote (laughs) *Undercover Angel*, *Midnight Fantasy*, he videotaped my whole wedding, and he's. He's got a video of Steve stealing all the big shrimp. You know, it's pretty funny. You know, I've got evidence, you know, (laughs) but I mean, you know, he had a great time. And in fact, I think my wedding really influenced him. I think he told me one time he goes, I want your wedding, man. And I really realized that I needed to settle down again and meet somebody that was really a good person for me and blah, blah, blah. And that's when he went after Kim again and married Kim. Mm. How has the Miller tour changed over the last
0: 20 years? Tour in terms of the travel part or the performance part? I would say just the dynamic of what it's like to be on the road. You know, your kids are grown or they grew up with you being on the road. You're an empty nester now, I take it. And and how is that? How does touring 20 years ago compared to touring now? For you well, personally?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's um, it's like, you know... Lee Strasberg in Godfather when he says this is the business we have chosen you know it's like that kind of thing you know you don't really analyze it too much you just kind of go like this is a great playing gig uh the music is good you know it's first class it's like we never feel that we're having to sacrifice anything it's like why not you know it's just sort of you just go you know you just you get the plane ticket and you show up you know and it's not like I'm getting all excited about, you know, the adoration or where we're playing or who we're going to be playing with and who we're going to be meeting and, you know, taking selfies with. And, you know, I, I don't even think about it. In fact, I don't even look at the itinerary real close. I kind of like a surprise. So sometimes they'll go out and I won't even look at, I don't even know where I'm going to be in a day or two. And I, I don't care. It's kind of right. fun. It's like being on a magic carpet ride and you just sort of watch it all kind of unfold. Right. And I would say that that's, kind of where i'm at right now and it's kind of like is there a fishing spot there where i'm going i'll make sure i take my ride that's about all i think about you know and uh you know because i know that the catering is going to be great the hotels are going to be great the transportation is going to be great the you know everything's going to be great steve is a class act He, he yeah he he's always had uh great regard for his musicians he treats them with great respect and uh That's another reason why we didn't have to be too close because I didn't have to go to him and complain or get heavy with him or call him out on his shit or, you know, I mean, I didn't have to do any of that. I just kind of let it be what it is. It is what it is. Because I've always described Steve as someone who is generous, but non-negotiable. So. It's on his terms, his generosity, and when it comes, you just be a good receiver and that's it. But you don't go to him and you don't like, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe you ought to give me a little more money and you know, and mm-hmm. I, I need like a little better bus or something like that. I mean, you know, I, I used to watch Norton do that and I go like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, because you know he could do that for some reason or other. He, he and Steve had a kind of a different relationship. But I never went down that pike. I just sort of like, mm, you know, whatever it is, what's gonna be, and it's fine. And, and, you know, and and Scotty, our manager, he's really great, too. He's a saint. He's always protecting us, and and Mm. he's sort of like a a go-between to us and Steve. And uh, he knows how to speak Jokerese. There's like a language that he has to speak in a way that he approaches Steve that if we tried to do it as a band, it would be a whole different dynamic. Mm. So he's able to, to work all that stuff out on our behalf, which is really great. And that's what gives, it that, that gives us a great professional dynamic. Like I was saying, we just show up, we say hi. It's kinda of like yeah, remember remember the uh the Warner Brothers cartoon when the coyote and the and the Roadrunner would pass each other? Yeah. You know, and they it would punch the, the cart. Or, or sometimes it was the sheep it was the sheepdog you, and the coyote. Right. You know, the sheepdog and the coyote and they punch the tongue, like, How you doing, Ralph? How you doing? <laughs> okay, and they'd pass. And then yeah. of course the rest of the cartoon, they're trying to kill each other. Right. And, and, right, and you right, know, right. it's a funny dynamic because it's almost that way, you know. Hmm. You started off on
0: guitar for the
1: first what
0: twenty-five years,
1: and that's a funny story too. Because if you, I, if you remember, I was a bass player. I was a studio bass player when I met Steve. And right. A, when how he, did when he that tra- happen? When he transferred the tra- well, I mean, I was a bass player and a guitar player all my life. Mm-hmm. When I was in, uh, you know, grammar school through junior high, I had a musician in front of my name, Bruce Leno. We were in bands together. He was a songwriter, and I was a fledgling writer, but. Mostly just a player. I was. I put more of my time into playing lead and copying you know, Hendrix and Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and all that stuff. And he was a writer. So when he would write his songs, he would write them on guitar. So when we would do his original material in our band, he'd want to be on guitar because that's what he felt comfortable with. It was harmonic. It was something he'd get his pitch from. And he, I would play the bass. And when we would play the cover tunes, the Hendrix, the Cream, the blah, 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 Uh, I would play all the lead guitar stuff, and he would play bass. So we would swap back and forth all the time. And that was just natural for us. We didn't even think anything of it. And, And as a result of that, we both became great rhythm guitar players and great bass players. Forget the lead guitar thing. I mean, anybody can play lead guitar. But to play really good rhythm and to play really great pocket bass, and, I mean, you, and you know this, you know, that's the stuff that gets you the work, not the lead guitar playing and all the Wheatley wheelies and stuff. <laughs> so that was the thing that we both did. So when I went to L.A., I went there as a, I think I kind of went there as a guitar player because that's what i had been doing in my bands up in Sacramento. But then when the r and thing started hitting real heavy in the mid-70s, all the sessions started leaning more towards really bass-orientated grooves. Mm-hmm. So that's when I really put my time into that. And then, like I said, I got in this cover, Chitlin Circuit Band, met James Jamerson, I met, you know, Lewis Johnson, and, you know, and James Jamerson Jr., and all this, they were all bringing me into that world, and I learned thumb techniques, slap, blah, 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 and that's what... Brought me into the studio world because I could read Lewis Johnson would do the dates where they just wanted a guy to play a lot of thumb But he couldn't read they'd bring me in to do the sessions that had notation, but they still wanted the slap and stuff, you know Mm -hmm. So we kind of traded a lot of sessions together Um, But so I was a bass player in those days So when I met Steve and we and I went to this album Photo session that I told you about that he called me about I end up showing up and I get there, and there's this black guy there that I hadn't seen through all the sessions that we've been doing over at Capitol, and I didn't know who he was, and so nobody had introduced me yet, so I just went up to him, and said, "Hey, how you doing? I'm Kenny Lee," and he goes, "Yeah, oh, I'm Gerald Johnson." I said, "I said, I said, are you like a percussionist or something?" <laughs> and he went like, "No, buddy, boy, I'm the bass player," and I went like, "Really?" I went okay, so I go over to Steve who's getting his makeup on. He's got you know the cucumbers on his eyes or whatever oh, yeah. he's doing, and he's and he's sitting there. I go, uh, Steve. He goes, Yeah. I go, What am I playing in this band? <laughs> he says, Oh, you're going to be a guitar player. Oh and at that, man! And I t- and I said and I said. Okay, well, well, why? And he goes, "Well, you played guitar on all of your demos, and I love your guitar playing. I, I want you to play guitar." I said, "I got a Strat, I got a Yamaha acoustic guitar, I have a basement head and a Wawa. You know, I think I might have had, I think I might have had a cabinet too, <laughs> a standel cabinet wow. with two mismatched speakers. So I was in no way ready to go on the road to be mm-hmm. a guitar player on that tour. And he and I explained that to him. He goes, "You know, he goes, don't worry about it. We'll get you gear." And I was like okay and, I, and i'd never been in a band where they did that kind of thing you know so uh, yeah we're up in seattle rehearsing sure enough we went to a music store one day with a wheelbarrow and we came out of there with like you know five amps and six guitars and you know echoplex pedals and oh, yeah. just all kinds of stuff you know and it's like he goes yeah these are all for you to play and i'm like really okay <laughs> thank you you know, you know yeah. he handed me Jimi hendrix's left-handed nineteen sixty-nine strat that he, he bought from Manny's that Jimmy had ordered but could never pick up because he, he died in seventy or whatever. He never picked it up. So Steve bought it and he handed it to you just string it right hand and just use this. It was it was the guitar that Jimmy Hendrix ordered for oh. himself. It was a left it was it was a, it was a, a left hand guitar. Because you know, Jimmy always played right hand guitars and flipped it over. You know? Right. I guess he wanted to see if he could play a left hand guitar, so he ordered a couple. And Steve bought them from Manny because they were on order and they were in the back room. And he showed me the receipt one day and it actually had Jimi Hendrix's name on the receipt. It was wild. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff I was just like blown away. I am just going like, wow. So I'm on this tour. Right, The first thing we know, we're playing in... uh, What are we playing? We played Tahoe, which was great because all my family and people showed up. And then we jumped up to... uh, Where did we go? We played um, Saratoga. And then we played... The Summerfest in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And then we played a little place in Jersey. And it was an old wooden joint. I can't even remember the name of it. But uh, we uh, we did only about four U.S. states, and then, bam, we jumped to Europe. Because if you remember... The abracadabra came out without a single because they wanted Steve to pay payola to a guy named Charlie Miner, who oh, was, I know a, that name. was a criminal that, you know, actually was the guy that got Diane the gig for Lucy and this guy. So thanks, Charlie. We appreciate that. But he held not only Steve's record back, but he held my piece's record back because uh-huh. none of us had $50,000 cash to hand him just to get into rotation, you know? Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> Steve wouldn't do it. He says, I never had to do that before on this Abracadabra album. So the record label went, okay. So they put out the album without a single, and that's why my song, Keeps Me Wondering, got some airplay at first because it was the first song on the record. DJs would just put the album on, and they go boop, and they'd play that. And I was like hearing that around town going, wow. But it didn't have any push behind it, so mm-hmm. it just kind of petered out. Right. But fortunately, at that time, Greg Fishbeck, who was his manager-lawyer, negotiated a deal where capital only had the U.S. and Canada distribution and Polygram Mercury in Amsterdam had the rest of the world. So what happened was the album got over there. And of course, they didn't, they didn't care about Paola. They're, they're all about art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. And they heard Abracadabra, which didn't sound like anything Steve had ever done before. And it was kind of like a pop you know, ska, reggae kind of feel. And it just went crazy in Europe. Nobody knew. We were actually up in Seattle rehearsing for this bleak U.S. tour, and we get a telegram one day, you know, from Western Union, talking about, you know, everybody get their visas in order because we're getting ready to go to Europe because we're number one in Ireland or something like that. It was just insane. And so that's how it all went down. We completely canceled our U.S. tour, went to Europe, We were number one all over there, except for England. We were number two because "Eye of the Tiger" was was released at that time from Rocky III. Who, incidentally, I had played bass on the soundtrack. I had played on the cues for Bill Conti. This was kind of funny. Oh wow! So yeah, but I mean, but the song was, of course, you know, Survivor, and that song kept us from going number one in England. Pretty funny no okay. but uh but we came back to the states you know big stars because we had been number one over in europe and that's when they finally started promoting it in the u.s and of course capital took all the credit we're taking the pictures with us and them go like, get away from me you guys didn't do shit you know i mean you know they were all trying to take those industry pictures with us and give us wow. the gold records and stuff and mm-hmm. we were like get away from us you know because they just you know jive you know it was all about you know graft and corruption Of course so. so. But let
0: me get back to the original question. You started on guitar, and then you forged a friendship with my brother that, of course, is strong as it ever has been, although he's not in the band anymore. You guys spent an incredible amount of time. You guys share so many of the same interests and things like that. He gets hurt. He falls off a ladder, and there's gigs happening. And I'm going... And you got the call. I got the call, and I was supposed to be on the road with Olita Adams. I'm like... Right, pri- which was a great gig for you. It was great gig for me. I, I knew the book for the Steve Miller book because it hadn't changed, I don't think. If and I the-
1: recall, we were doing two nights at the Thornton School of Music at USC. We were going to do two nights, and there was a benefit for the school. And if I recall, you could do one night, but you couldn't do the other night. I don't remember, to be honest. That's what I recall. And when that went down, that's when Scotty went to Steve. He goes, well, we can have Paul for one we got to get somebody else for the other night, you know. And Steve says, I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, goes, I him. Just want, I just want the same guy for both nights, you know. Yeah. And, so, and that's when Scotty goes, well, didn't Keeney play bass on, like, your first three albums from 93? Because I played on three albums. I played not only on All Abracadabra, right. but I played on, you know, uh... Shangri-La on the, you know, I played on Italian X-rays, and I played on Mm. Living in the 20th Century. I played bass on all three of those albums. I didn't know that. Not all the tracks, but many of the tracks, you know. Mm. So he had forgotten. It was so long ago, you know. Right. And, because this was like 2009 or 10. Right, right. I think it was 2010. He'd forgotten. You know, he goes, oh, yeah, Kenny's a bass player. And that's when he said, "Well, just have Kenny play the bass, and I'll just do the guitar." So that's how it all started. And right. we were all waiting for Billy to come back, you know, because he was, you know, uh, you know, uh, he was healing and he couldn't stand. I think he broke his ankle in four places. He did yes. Yeah. So yeah. he couldn't really even stand on stage. He would have to sat in a chair or something. You know? Right. And Steve didn't want that, so he says, "Well, just have Kenny play until he comes back." So that's what was going on, right. and that's how how that went down. And so I started playing bass and.
0: The Stayed on bass.
1: The powers of B were just sort of like, you ain't leaving that chair. Right. And I went, what are you talking about? We're waiting for mm-hmm. Billy to come back. And they were going, nope, you're going to stay there. One of the reasons, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I was playing some lead guitar in the show at that time. Right. And I was getting really good press. So there you go.
0: Ah, we'll let the rest to our
1: imagination. So I got fired as a guitar player the same day that I got asked to be the bass player. Cool way to put it. Cool way to put it. Yeah, I was fired and hired the same day, same day. You know? Wow. Just because I want to be good with
0: you with the time, and we're, we're probably up against the 60 minutes of what the podcast is,
1: tell me what you do when you're not on the road. What I'm doing now, Paul, is I'm kind of following my friend Tim Pierce's model. Um, he's a great studio guitar player that I actually helped get a guitar when he came into town in 80, helped him get a Schecter guitar. I just interviewed him. You can go to my YouTube channel. Which is kenny lee lewis on youtube there's a playlist there that's called uh fret friends and it's just sort of like what you're doing here we inter- i interview celebrity guitar players we might play a little bit but we just talk about stuff or i might not interview and i might just do a lesson or i might do a, a little bit of a master class right uh, a little bit of a master class and so what happened is is that it developed kept getting going and then so i i went ahead and got a website together like Tim does, of his masterclass called FretFriends.com, F-R-E-T-F-R-E-N-Z.com. Okay. And uh, that is a subscription lesson website, you know, uh, which, of course, everybody started doing during COVID because we were all out of work. And that's mm-hmm. what I was doing in addition to live streams, which are also on that same uh, YouTube channel with my band right here in this garage uh, during COVID. And uh, so I'm trying to monetize that into something where it will operate it on an on auto <clears throat> sort of a robot level to where, you know, subscriptions will come in. I've yet to got to that point yet where it's even paying for itself. Okay. So I'm working on that this week. I'm going to try to, like, change the format of it and, uh, you know, make it so it's a little cheaper to run because right now I'm on Kajabi, which is really expensive. So I'm going to change that while I'm building that. Uh, but also, you know, I'm doing, you know, sessions for other people. I produce other acts. I have a studio. Of course, are we still recording? It looks like we're still recording. Yeah, we got to wait for uh, <laughs> them. <That's laughs> so, I got a virtual session here, and you know, um, I produce people here. I do live gigs around here. I bought five bands. Uh, I write novels. I have books on Amazon, uh, one of which is called Skeleton Dolls, uh, Children of the Tower, which is uh, done very well. I self published it, and I'm trying to get an agent right now for the sequel. So, I'm in the process of doing that. Uh, but I also have, you know, my band Barflies, B A R F L F L Y Z music.com. People can go there and see what that's all about. Also on Facebook, I have another band called Friends, which is where I got the Fret Friends from, F R E N Z music.com. That's kind of like a tribute dual lead guitar harmony, you know, like uh, Steely Dan meets the Almond Brothers with nice. Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck and all that stuff. I do that. I also have a band called Supernova, which is a Latin. Band, I'm actually got a cool. gig, and next week doing that. I did one last right. week with them. It's a uh, fun uh, saxophone player from War is in that with me, and uh, and then I have um, a, a, the the band that I'm doing with your nephews up there in Montana, which I just changed the name of. I call it Hucklebear now, which All is right. the band which is the band that Billy plays in, and we play up in the northwest and up in the, the Montana area. With that, we just did three gigs up there. And the uh, fact that Will is already booking some more gigs with them uh, over Thanksgiving. I can't make that, unfortunately, because I'm going to be here with my daughter, Kendra. But they're going to continue that legacy going forward when Billy and I can't even do it. So we got jobs for your nephews now, which is kind of <laughs> nice. Love it. I love keep it, it. Keep it, it, going, keep it going, going, man. Keep it going. So that's the kind of stuff that I've been doing, and you know, of course, Diane performs with me from time to time. Our Barflies band is really unique, and but unfortunately, COVID killed a couple of the venues we were we were playing in at the time, and we haven't been able to find a place that fits that band quite yet. There's a place called Libretto that I'm hoping up in Paso Robles that will be the one. Uh, that we will start uh, resurrecting barflies again. But if you want to see that, like I said, go to barflyzmusic.com. You can see that with my wife. We do all kinds of interesting covers. It's kind of a jazz pop meets mashups. And uh, it's for our, our older age group of wine, the wine enthusiasts around here. Right. And it's been working out really well. So that's a fun that's band. Great. But, uh, you know, other than that, you know, just uh, doing gardening and cooking and, you know, enjoying. The fly the fishing. Wine. Join And fly fishing, a lot of fishing. Not a you know. boy. Yeah, yeah. Just learned, got my waders, got my vest. I, I just learned how to nymph fly fish in the, and I was just fishing in the Missouri and the Blackfoot, and I was catching the monster mm-hmm. trout. It was fun, man. That's I mean, I had never got to that part of my fishing thing. I always just use lures, catch them, take a picture of them, usually let them go, but I'll eat them sometimes. Now I think I'm just going to be letting them all go and just... kind of leave them in the net and be really nice to them and everything. Mm. So in my older years I'm becoming less of a... You're a softy man. Yeah, I'm not a Neanderthal anymore. I'm a little more of an (laughs) artist. I'm an artist.
0: That's (laughs) right. Kenny, thank Thank you so so much much. for spending an hour with us. It's been fascinating Fascinating. and I learned learned so much much just about art. art. Passings, Passings in the night in the, the steel. And I, I wanted to brag about
1: you a little too. I mean, the guitar parts you played on this new record here. By the way, I'll do a little uh, commercial here. This is the record, folks. Go out and buy it. It's cr- it's great. Uh, Paul played uh, some uh, guitar on this and and played all the drums on it. He played on the gig the other night but i mean the guitar parts were beautiful and so i oh. i really really love your guitar playing i'm a big fan of yours let alone oh. your bass playing and your drumming is ridiculous so <laughs> i wanted to just give a little commercial for paul peterson oh bro.
0: i love you man and you are a peterson we've adopted you we we oh. think the world of you and th- thanks for taking the time out go Thank check you. out all of kenny's websites that you uh, that you heard him mention and uh kenny say hi to diane i love you brother she's, she's at some
1: this. gig right now checking out some band down the street she wanted me to go i said i can't i gotta be with paul i love it well that's it for
0: us episode 51 in the books i can't believe we're that far along already you guys will see you in a couple of weeks thanks so much thank you music on the run was hosted by yours truly saint paul peterson edited and produced by my buddy davide razo video editing by tanner montague And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember to take the money and run.